Welcome to Programming Love Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Olu. This is a lovely podcast where we meet passionate people and discuss programming. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from individuals from around the world on their journey and the joys and pains they experience along the way, so we can all learn and move forward together. This week, I'm coming to you from Seattle, and as a co-host, please welcome Product Manager at JetBrains in Kotlin Project, Anton Arhipov. Hello. Anton, before we started, what have you been busy with this week? Oh, it's been mostly the leisure time. We have holidays here in Estonia for two days, but I actually spent some time interviewing users who use Kotlin for server-side development. Oh, good, good. We should talk about that in our future episodes because everyone knows Kotlin for Android, but it's interesting what's on the server side, how people use it and what problems or what nice things, the advantages they're seeing there. Okay, let's start our episode. Today, we're going to discuss Kafka. No, not Franz Kafka, who was a novelist and short story writer, but Kafka as an, an open source streaming processing software. If you are unfamiliar with Kafka, it's a scalable, fault-tolerant, publish-subscribe messaging system that enables you to build distributed applications. It powers web-scale internet companies such as LinkedIn, Twitter, Airbnb, and many, many, many others. And I think I've used that for every project I worked on. So what is the value of Kafka? Why is it suddenly so popular and should you use it? In this episode, we hope to give you enough information to answer these questions. So welcome our guests, Tim Berglund and Victor Gamov, who are from developer relations team from Confluent. Hey, Oli, thanks for having us. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming, guys. I already shared this before the show with Tim. I have some interesting stories about Seattle. I've been in uh, Seattle last three days in was post-ecalyptic Seattle and I was like battling <laughs> with some infected people and some like rogue fractions inside inside <laughs> Seattle. That is way too current. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Sometimes I think like these writers, they, you know, super, are they predicting stuff or whatnot? What's the name of the game, Victor? He's talking about a video game, everybody. Uh, yeah, that's uh, The Last of Us Part 2. Let's talk about Kafka. Yeah, so what is Kafka? The basics, components, and why is it called Kafka? Victor and I will just fight for the answers. All up. Yeah, I see there's too many layers in this one. Uh, too many layers in this answer. So we'll just, we'll go back and forth. Kafka is, uh, there's a number of ways to summarize it. I think calling it an event streaming platform is nice. That's broad and inclusive, but sometimes unhelpful also. Distributed messaging system is sometimes what people refer to it as. That's a little more concrete, but also a little misleading. Distributed log is a good way of describing Kafka. It's a place where you store events and organize them and run real-time streaming computations over those records of events. Vic, what would you add to that? I would say that sometimes people might think about this as a distributed transaction log because interesting thing about Kafka and the interesting thing about any technology, pretty much, everyone is trying to explain something with the best of their knowledge about if they're trying to explain something new they're trying to explain something based on something they already know uh, so this why team mentioned the distributed messaging system distributed uh, streaming platform so it depends on who you're talking to some people might give you different definition 
what what I reading from the Apache website is uh, it's a distributed streaming event streaming platform. So storage of uh, events it's not only like messaging system that allows you being dumpy, but also there's some bits of computation that you can run on this data. So and also allows you to bring data from multiple sources. So the platform itself combines multiple multiple components. But usually when the people are saying Kafka, they usually implying a set of brokers that will comprise this Kafka cluster. Okay, so why not just some messaging middleware? I mean, like, I don't know, WebLogic, JMS. Sure, sure. I don't know why you would even say those words to me, Anton. I thought we were friends, but uh, <laughs> let's still take the question. That Number one, in calling it a log, that's not an accidental term. So Q is normally what how you refer to the things that underlie messaging middleware. Like anything that JMS would be the API that you'd use to access, there's probably a Q under that. And the assumption about the things that you put into a Q is that their Q is ephemeral, right? They stay there for a little while and then you take them out and they're gone. And it's just like a buffer between two things. Where Kafka is called the log because, well, that's not the case. The things that you write into a Kafka topic stay there for a defined period of time, which can be infinity. So it's actually a system of record or potentially it wants to take this position in your architecture as the place where events are stored authoritatively. Okay. Let me keep going with the DevOps advocate then. I mentioned WebLogic JMS, but then there is Oracle Advanced Queuing that basically uses the Oracle database underneath and you can use it as a JMS implementation. So if I use this table that actually stores the messages as a non-deletable or non-truncatable table that I always populate and then clean up sometimes, then it's basically the same persistent storage or topic or whatever. Let me ask you a question, but does it spark a joy? Like, what's the fun of this? I really like the way how we did this type of stuff back in the day when I was a consultant. Every time when writing to the table, we create a trigger that actually populates these, and Anton mentioned, untruncatable database that only appends the records based on if it's event, uh, based on this something, some event happened. I updated the record, I deleted the record, so I kept have this stuff. So in this case, I can implement this log idea everywhere including database itself. I don't need to even have a message-oriented middleware. But the reason why I started this with the question that does Spark Joy, is it comfortable? Is it something that you can easily to do? And every time you need to either teach other people how to use this pattern or there's some like best practices how to implement this. But it also creates some additional complexities for your application design for like schema management and the database migrations and things like that. So this why... I like the way how the team to put this in one of the videos. It's cumbersome. It's possible. It, you can use the traditional database to do this, but it doesn't spark a joy. It's it's a just like meaningless. You want to focus on doing something meaningful to write your app rather than just like copy-pasting the triggers code. And another way to put that, I think more charitably, Anton, of course, if you have an existing commitment to Oracle and all the licenses are lying around and you like walk in the office and the door and you're scraping extra Oracle licenses out of your sneakers, you know, and everything's built on Oracle and sort of that momentum is there. And now I have this logging need. Of course you could do that, right? That's totally fine. But nobody is going to go to market to an open source community and say, here's your queue or here's your messaging system or here's your distributed log. I can do it with an Oracle database. You know, So it's important that there's an open source foundation to this and that it's built from the ground up to be an event log. 
and all the components that have emerged around it in the ecosystem are all the things that you need to make an event log usable. All right. So we have an event log and what does it enable? Does it enable us doing some specific architectural, I don't know, decisions, patterns, simplify something for us? Actually, yes. It actually simplifies many things. It simplifies your design of the system because you don't need to, maybe you can, you need to, but uh, not really. So in terms of like delivering the stuff into other systems, you don't need to worry about how those other systems will get your message or what's going to happen if the system that would be interested in your message will not be available. So many times in many projects with the messaging systems, you need to think about how you will re-deliver messages. Like every time one of the, you know, the consumers or one of the listeners of your data will not be available, they need to think if they need this data, how they will get this because they were not available. So in this case, they need to call you literally saying, Hey, so we missed that. Can you uh, just like resend these messages over this GMSQ and we'll reconsume it? With Kafka thing that team explains, it actually stores there. So every time when you miss the message, you will back in time in terms of, uh, you know, get the particular offset, the place and time where the message is and uh, continue. Another thing, which most important, it's also, I don't want to sound too uh, the marketing type of thing, but like it's future proof because sometimes you want to implement some of the use cases, but you didn't come up with this uh, algorithm yet. So you want to have ability to return this and replay this uh, set of events in order to get something new. So that's why Kafka provides you this like a unified view on your data, organizational data. Another use case, simply, yeah, just like one last use case. There's a, if you're talking about licenses and things like that, there's a other a company that um, produces like a big machines, big business machines at mainframes. And license cost to access some of the data might be huge. If you need to access data on the mainframe, you might need to have the license to connect to the DB2. Once you bring this data out of this DB2 into Kafka, for example, you don't need to pay extra license to put another consumer to read this data. I'm hearing at least two ideas that, I don't know, they are separate in my mind, but maybe you can explain that more. First is the idea of event sourcing development, where you derive your state from the log that you have. And that's one thing where you have state, where you can replay, where you can go back in history and see what you've seen. And the second idea is that, particularly in Kafka, consumers are a little bit dumb, meaning that they know their offset, they can commit the messages that they've read, but if they fail, nothing bad happens to the system which stores the messages. The only thing is that you want to restart your consumer and start to read where you stopped or from the beginning or whatever logic you want. So I guess Anton's question was more about the first if I understood correctly about the first thing, how do you think about your application when you're using the messaging system? How that changes your mindset if compared to applications without that? It's going to sound like I'm just saying event sourcing again. That's not what I mean to say, because you, you already said event sourcing, but put event sourcing proper off to the side. What architecture does Kafka enable? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say... It's a very opinionated thing, but I'm going to say microservices. All right. Well, Tim, you say, 
we, I've done microservices and didn't use Kafka. We used gRPC. And, you know, there are other ways to do that, right? But microservices without logs are things that are synchronously coupled. And yes, people succeeded doing that. Like it's theoretically imaginable that somebody would succeed with the Oracle JMS wrapper thing. I'm sure it's happened three times. You, you could absolutely have microservices call each other synchronously, but you end up with these other kind of patterns emerging around those service interactions that are new layers of software and new sidecars and, and new failure scenarios that you have to accommodate. It doesn't feel like we've gotten there yet, right? Services that are reactive, that are consuming from Kafka topics. Like, again, this starts to sound like event sourcing and it can be if you want it to be, but every service's input, if it's being choreographed with other services, every service's input is a message that it gets from another service. It's an event and a Kafka topic. It's not, it's not a message like a queue, but it's an event and a topic. So this architecture, you know, what does Kafka enable? Well, microservices done right. And now you have, this is kind of the event sourcing angle. You've got this log of everything that's happened between those services. You've got, well, here's my log of confirmed orders and here's my log of shipment requests. And you build that, that topic for the, the service that you're writing to consume it, you know, like you make confirmed orders because the payment service needs work to do. And the payment service puts settled orders because the shipment service needs work to do. But well, now you have these logs and all these other services can grow up around those logs. So you've got not just like successful, simpler microservices, but a shot at an evolvable architecture. It's kind of a holy grail thing that we all talk about wanting and usually don't quite realize, but I think it's a key piece of infrastructure and just a key abstraction that clears barriers out of the way to evolvability happening. So what would be the difference between having microservices with RPC, say gRPC, and enabling some kind of open tracing support and logs and things like that on top of it and having spans? So what would be the difference between using Kafka or do you still need this on top of Kafka? One of the things is that those things that you mentioned are observability and debugging tools, which are essential. And you, you like maybe still need those anyway. It just depends on what you're doing. They're not system of record data infrastructure. So yes, you can trace, you can, as a developer, see what's going on, but you're not then going to build up a new service that consumes that open tracing data and runs fraud detection on top of orders instead of just payments or runs a customer loyalty program notification service on top of that tracing data. You need the system of record keeping that event stream in a durable way for that kind of stuff to emerge. Vic, I'll hand it to you. So let me ask you a question, Oli. So every time when you debugging system, like when you need to investigate some of the issues that happened, what do you do? Like, okay, so we have our open tracing. But you're not starting with open tracing, but sometimes you don't even have it. But what you have in your application? Yeah, I'm starting with println. Exactly. And this is a fantastic answer that I expected. People start to do local debugging because they want to see what happened to the system. They want to have this, I don't want to use like a word serializable because it's kind of like a slightly overused word like but like there's a sequential things that you want to investigate and this sequential thing that you're investigating you look into log and seeing okay there's steps of events that you have in your system that things that happen okay here's my spring boot logo here's my database connection uh, successful and this is what my print land so somewhere in between i have this problem you already have this log you're using log this already it's nature for your application to 
communicate through events and or like a, a capture event. It's it's natural for people to communicate through events. So this is why I would say we have a generation of um, engineers. They try to convert our first of all, we were taught to do that, and how we convert like objective world into relational world. So we, now we learn how we can get these object things that we have in our world into relations, like entity relations type of thing. You know, we can, and they don't translate directly. There's some of the things, some of the trade-offs they need to go through. And now we're saying, okay, so the if object world is not truly object world. It is more event world because things are happening in your life. Not objects happen in your life but events happen in your life. And I'm just trying to drill down into like a natural approach to, to eventing. Even your tracing system, it's also capturing events. But with the log-based uh, data structure that allows you to capture events in the system in immutable, in immutable fashion, that you will be able to, again, you cannot change those. And once you establish, centralize the place where you're storing all the logs, all the events from your application, you will be able to restore state of the system in a given moment of time, especially in the time of failure. So you can will be able, based on the certain correlation ID that your events might happen, you do kind of like a enrichment or also known as join type of, of, of multiple streams and you will get the full picture of what happened, like multiple systems and you get this result. It's powerful because it is built into foundational bits of like event streaming platform. It's not like some of the software that implements. It's a kind of like ideas that implement it in one way or another. I don't know if I make it clear or make it less clear at this point. Let me try to summarize and then you tell me (laughs) if I'm wrong or, or correct. So basically, it's not just sending the messages but also keeping the messages in in this particular order as a log file so that you can actually run some analytics and get some reports or like some extra functionality verifying if if the system was behaving correctly or not. Yes, and not just analytics, but other services, whatever else might need to happen with that data. Maybe it's stuff that interacts with a customer in a transactional way, just new services, it's fine. Okay, but if we talk about historical data, it means that, well, previously, like at the end of the day in the bank, we run the batch process, right? Which basically takes all the events that happened during the day and the next day I get the report. But this approach, as I understand, I could get these reports much faster. Yes, you always, in a given moment of time, you have uh, ability to see a report, say for what, like uh, 5 p.m. or like uh, 4 p.m time frame there's multiple like things that we're not talking about because like some of the things need to be implemented it's not something out of the box but because it's a part of either what i called like a trust plane so i was doing devops talk like on the devops of event streaming platform and like actually breaking down these patterns and the things that you anton is asking is more what we called the trust plane so essentially there's like a core thing that your application does that implements business function. This business function, say you're doing like payment system and the payment system has one or this microservice. It has one particular thing. You have an input of the payments and you do something with this payment. And after that, you spit it out if it's processed or not. This is your core business function. And around this, using the event streaming platform as your backbone, you can build some additional supporting services that provide capabilities for 
what we call it, like a trust plane. Trust plane allows you to get relevant business metrics based on the output of your core business functional system. So you need to implement this trust plane and having this reporting system constantly updating state of the report. So on a given moment of time, you know that you process like $1 million or like uh, you process more. So you don't need to run like a batch to do this. You have a constant process that based on this event can react on this and uh, they can react on a different time than your core business function because it might have a certain SLAs. You need to perform this much, much more faster and more tight deadlines rather than the things like reporting that can be executed and will give you like not every second or not every minute, but at least every hour. It will not have a batch every hour, but it have a, like a window where result would be speeds out at the end of the window, like a fixed window. Or you can have a slide, slide window, like every 15 minutes speeds up result. Like if your the business observability function requires this. Wow. Like I said, I, I was um, I was doing like a DevOps oriented talk, and now I'm kind of still, I guess, under under this impression. <laughs> okay, okay. So Kafka is a middleware, right? It's data infrastructure. So it's it's uh, middleware is by definition something that lives in between data and application. And um, Kafka doesn't need to. It, you can put it in between a database and an application, but there is no in betweenness about it. It's where data goes to live and where things grow out of that data. So it fills the same kind of infrastructural role that a database plays. But I don't think that, like Anton, I objected to you saying Kafka's middleware. I would also object to someone saying Kafka's a database. I would shut that down in a heartbeat. All right. It wasn't the rest of the question. I, I wanted to get to the point where I could ask what's streaming and what's KSQL and how they are different and why should I use them instead of just you know sending messages? Okay, so good question. And this kind of gets to the, again, is Kafka a database? Like, oh, hold, hold my feet to the fire on that. Don't let me just answer that that easily. But why use KSQL? The, the thing is that it's um, maybe more blessed to give than to receive, but it's also usually simpler to produce than to consume in Kafka. Producer code tends to be simpler code. Now, there are exceptions to that, but usually there is some event and you do some kind of transformation and maybe validation and you're like, you stick at the topic and you're done. On read, those programs grow hair on the consume side. And the Kafka consumer API is very lightweight. And in deference to our host, I would say very imperative. There's nothing functional about it. It's like you get a message and you go do things with it. You know, what happens in consumers though, is there are few things that show up like you want to aggregate well, that means you group, and that means you got something like a hash table in memory. And sounds functional to me. It doesn't it though. It sounds like there should be a reducing function there somewhere. But there's um, you, you know, you group, and there's a hash table, and there's time windowing that you have to deal with, and there's scale out and state, and like all of this stuff that just the core Kafka consumer API does nothing for. Now Kafka Streams, which is a part of of Apache Kafka, is a functional. API on top of that, that makes all that pleasant. And KSQL is the SQL-like version of the same. So if you, well, you don't ever want to redo all that work. If you're writing in a JVM language, you at least want to use Kafka Streams for that because it's the framework that you're going to build. You're going to build a buggy partial version of that if you don't use it. I like the initial one of the 
first evangelists of like Kafka and stream processing. Martin Clapton has this uh, idea of like turning things inside out and uh, upside down. So when the team was talking about this kind of use case about producer and consumer, and this is also slightly call out to Anton's question about the middleware. Usually with middleware, you have producer, middleware, consumer. This is your pattern. And this is kind of like you really don't want to break this link. And the pattern is someone is producing and you will consuming and the message-oriented middleware will deliver. With Kafka and uh, in general event streaming platforms, the streaming, actually the essence of streaming, it's uh, upside down or like uh, not upside down or not inside out, but like from different direction. You consume, you produce, and you publish or like you, you're writing back. So in this case, this pattern is constant. This is what you're doing with streaming. And streaming is essentially dealing with facts, dealing with events as they arrive, not waiting for until they accumulate. In this case, like sometimes people will forget when we are um, calling our team now, when we're talking about the databases and things like that, and people, especially people asking, do we have a transactions? Like, can we do like two-phase commit type of stuff? And many people asking this question with clear intentions, with the some of the past baggage when they need to produce write the message in multiple place in this case they need to have a transaction they write into database because they already got this uh, from somewhere so they either generated your application logic generate this date and you need to write this somewhere and you want to also send the message and things like that with kafka the part of transactional bit it's not on the producer side that rather than your computational the results will not disappear. So in this case, you consume, you perform, you commit, and this is where you know transaction is important because you don't want to lose your data and you don't want to lose the pointer where you were. So this is why it's a little bit technicality. We can drill down if you want. If you don't, it's also fine. But essentially, the things with Kafka and streaming, it's always consume, process, and writing back. And it's always running. It's not like a one-off operation. It's always happening based on this event. This is streaming. And the things that team explained in terms of how you will implement this logic and where Oli might also get excited because there is still some of the functional aspect because in the streaming side, especially in Kafka streams, the logic executed in this like uh, the topology, which is describes as a kind of like a data flow directed a cyclic graph that not applied to subset of data, but rather message would be sent, the message passing from one node of this topology to another in one direction. So this is a pretty powerful concept that allows to implement scalability aspect. This topology will be run not on a whole data set. It will be, you can run this topology on a subset of partitions. So, so this is how you can get the scalability aspect. You can just like throw more instances of your graphic streams application and your topology, same topology that you described before you start your application will be executing this message and all the messages will be processed same way. In this case, you don't need to have a reduce function here. Reduce I'm using in the sense of map reduce because you apply a function. This is your mapping. You do some like a rehashing or rekeying, putting data around. And after that, to get the result, you do a reduce here. You don't need to because result will end up into Kafka. And here, the last thing that I want to say is more closely related to the way how the Unix is built. When you have an output of one application can be passed to another application through the pipes. And in this case, Kafka will be pipes and input and output can be either applications or it can be connectors. But actual application 
where you're passing this message around, it is uh, streaming your application, uh, your, your Kafka streams, KSQL, or any other framework that can deal with Kafka messages for that matter. So, Any other framework? Can you name any? Yeah, so there are frameworks for dealing with uh, stream processing. There is a, usually like, if you go to a, like a patch website, you have a bunch of different projects doing kind of similar things. So that's why like there is a patch of link, there's Spark streaming. That's right. But what you're saying, they are compatible or not? No, but uh, something like Flink is a good example, Anton. Like when there's a Flink, there's pretty much always going to be a Kafka in nearby. And Flink is, in this case, an alternative way of doing computations over streaming events. It's stream processing infrastructure and API and stuff all glued together, where you stand up a Flink cluster, you deploy a stream processing program to the Flink cluster, and it consumes events from a Kafka cluster. That's a system, like Victor mentioned, that's compatible with Kafka. And that would be, in this sense, quote unquote, competing with Kafka streams or KSQL DB as a means of doing the stream processing. Now, the systems have different characteristics and tend to lend themselves to different scales and applications and sort of sensibilities. But in the broadest sense, they do the same thing and they're compatible with Kafka. Okay. Yeah, I still have a question about KSQL and uh, Kafka streams. So you said that essentially they basically are the same but one is for JVM languages, some kind of API, and KSQL is analog alternative with SQL syntax. Yeah, and the same, you know, broadly. So is that for other languages so that they could use that, or what's the reason of having that as a separate and... Yeah, so that's one reason, is that Kafka Streams... You can use any language you want as long as it's a language of the JVM with good Java interop. You could even use Scala, right? But I don't believe, you know, we need to make a ringtone out of it. Like when someone's calling a team, like you can use Scala and do, 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 do. But yeah, no, it's, it's, that's fairly limited of, uh, in terms of languages. Now, in typical enterprise applications, that's not practically a limitation. But KSQL and K, well, KSQL DB is the, we don't care about your language, the interface is REST. If you can append strings and do an HTTP connection, you can use it. And also, I think it's fair to say, it's probably easier, like if you knew both and you could do the same kind of operation in either one, it's probably easier to do it in KSQL DB. Can I challenge you on this one, Tim? Do you think it is actual truth if you're saying that, okay, so you know SQL uh, actually helps you to, um, you know, start doing things or it will bring some of the baggage of uh, your expectation that you expected from your database, but would be not 100% mappable to SQL? Well, we all have baggage, don't we? And we all yeah. have to go through it. Previous relationship, previous employers previous technology paradigms that part of them are coming over with us to our new tool set, yeah. like the syntax, and part of it really isn't because it isn't really a relational, it isn't a relational database at all. So yeah, you have to be careful that you got to go through your baggage and figure out, wait, I still have that shirt with all those holes in it. And you know, my spouse told me I should throw it out and I'm going to do that now. So yeah, you, you have to be careful when you're using KSQL that you don't just apply all relational concepts that could possibly be in your mind. It's a familiar syntax. It's not a relational database. But I, I still think it's worth it. 
Yeah, I like to feel, or the way how I like to talk about people, because if you think about this, SQL in a broader programming sense, it's still DSL. It's a domain-specific language that was in the domain of uh, databases, right? So it's still valid to call, if we will expand on this term of database and we call it, what is database, right? So there's some definition that there is a relational database, but there's non-relational databases. If you can expand on this, can we call KSQL DBA database? I think, we, yes, we can. There's like legitimate ways how you can store the data. And those data may be stored not necessarily in Kafka, even though Kafka is a big part of the storage. So it's it's all semantics. So I would say that KSQL, KSQL is a DSL that allows you to write your stream processing application in any project, right? So same way is th- there was never a problem. I'm trying to go into the programming, like a flame wars type of stuff. And the, the well, let's start calling like things with their names, programming languages. So you have a multiple uh, programming languages in your application. And no one is arguing that, you know, using, using SQL as your kind of lingua franca of data layer, right? So in this case, what about using SQL, KSQL or whatever? for writing a your stream processing application. Why is it REST API? It just doesn't matter. It's just like whatever. If there is a WebSocket interface, we're working on some native client libraries that will be exposed. It's just a transport. Essentially, on top of the REST API, we implement a couple things. There's a kind of continuous query mm-hmm. where you're getting the continuous response. And there is a you know request response simply because there's two type of queries that you can execute continuous query or you can execute like finite queries you can execute commands because there's not only about programming but also there's some management you need to you know set up some of the parameters or like uh, set up some of the configurations so it's just a transport and it's just happened to be like a mostly widely adoptable accessible transport yeah it's like uh, nobody ever gets fired for building a rest interface are you only is what is the alternative you're thinking of like talk to it through topics rpc rpc oh i mean it's it, rpc but uh in this case it emulates your cli interface like if you ever been in a sql plus cli you know you type in stuff and you get results you type in some get results so in this case it fits into this request response paradigms but internally because when you're calling something you can say it's also rpc because you're calling some functions that would be... Yes, that's that's why that reminded me of RPC because you call functions. So I think it's just also semantics. And right now we live in the world where we cannot be like 100% purist and saying that, oh, this is going to be like a, a request response. This is going to be our RPC because there's so... Even though we implementing something or like we're calling some logic by calling some REST service and after that there's something's happened on the backend. We cannot say this is like 100% like REST. We're using HTTP as our transport, but like what is, it's not RPC in a sense how I learned what's RPC, which is, my, my was my first RPC that I learned. Essentially, your client don't need to know the protocol. You don't need to have these stubs and we're not hiding this stuff from the client. Once we implement this like a native client interface that allows you to interact with KSQL DB through the Java API, now it will be RPC with HTTP as a transport. But right now, I would say it's just like a question how pure you want to be, like in terms of your things, uh, what you say or things say right. Another alternative that I'm thinking of is GraphQL. Huh. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened someday. It's, it seems reasonable. 
it's not there yet. And we certainly wouldn't make any kind of roadmap announcements that weren't in a open clip already. And I think there is an open clip in, in GitHub on that. I could be wrong, but. There's even a working example that uh, implements uh, GraphQL on top of KSQLDB. And it works. Yeah. So it's uh, like, I don't know when, but it's the community's talking about it. Mm-hmm. So you're, I think you're on the right track. The, the community thinks you're on the right track. That sounds natural to have a database and GraphQL without like, Exactly. And the things around, so when we're talking about GraphQL and databases and how they map, we cannot talk about schemas, right? So how this data would be structured and letter S. I mean, you know, I don't want to, my Russian accent would sound like I'm saying some inappropriate words, but what I meant is letter S in KSQL means structural. So let's talk about structure. Let's talk about the ways how we can enforce the structure. Actually, I, I thought about uh, schema and uh, like, okay, we talked about KSQL and moved there, but actually there is another question about Kafka itself and its transport and why you serialize things into Avro. That's probably a question you've heard a hundred times. Why Avro? Why Avro and not? Protobuf, not. Well, if you... so. Two things. I mean, Kafka itself doesn't care what yes. you do. You do anything you want. KSQL started with a kind of an Avro-centric view of the world because that had always been culturally in the Kafka community what the default serialization format was from the beginning. And then really there was a fair amount of momentum over time away from Avro towards protobuf. And so now I don't remember the version number, but just in the last few months, KSQL is upgraded to support protobuf. Oh. Confluence Schema Registry supports protobuf now, and that's all. Like, we're sorry if it's fixed. Okay, I'm not up to date, it seems. You're not two months off. It's not a long time. Oh, okay. One of the recent uh, YouTube streams that I did actually like expand on this topic. So, uh, self-plug, go to subscribe my YouTube channel, enable these notifications. The thing is that a boss of my boss actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, saying that like in our, you know, the state of the world, our team needs to become like A plus A. Triple A class of YouTubers. I don't know what's, what's exactly what he used, but like the, you know, top YouTubers. So that's why uh, I heard the top YouTubers saying, go subscribe to my YouTube channel, enable notifications. So I'm saying this all the time. I think I'm doing right. But essentially the question about structure, how to describe uh, your data, it's in how to introspect what would be in, inside, inside the data. It's a, it's actually a big conversation where we, uh, because the way Kafka works, it doesn't introspect uh, when you publish something. And one of the huge, uh, performance wins that Kafka provides is this like a zero copy mechanism where the message would be streamed directly from socket into file on the Kafka side. So that's why there's no way how we can learn what inside without providing some additional information. So this is how, uh, say, integration with schema registry works. Let's actually explain what schema registry is and why we need that at all. Schema registry is a service that runs outside a Kafka cluster. So it's its own little piece of infrastructure running somewhere near the cluster and producers and consumers talk to it. So when you're going to write a message into a topic, you register the schema of that message with the schema registry, eliding a number of details there to say, okay, here this is, it's this version. And this is an actual, you know, here's the, the IDL describing the schema. Keep that please. And consumers, when they read, they're going to get when they, they read a message, it's going to have a schema ID in it. They're going to say, hey, schema registry, this is you know schema three. What do you know about that? They'll be able to cache a copy of that schema. And the consumer 
So both the producer and the consumer have some opinion about the schema that they're writing or reading. They're there at some version of the software, right? And then there's the actual data in the topic. So what schema registry does is on the consume side, when you're reading, it's going to help you determine, is this schema compatible with what I think it is? I am some version. It's some other version. Is this going to go well? If it's not, don't let me have it. On the produce side, I've got some version of the schema. There is some other version in the topic. Is this compatible? When I, when I produce this, will my readers be able to read this message? If not, don't let me produce. So it's just like this little layer of safety that helps keep a complex ecosystem of producers and consumers that get versioned at separate times from stepping on each other too badly. Also, it gives you an IDL for describing your schema, whether it's Avro or Protobuf. Now there's a file where I can say, this is the format of the messages in this topic. Developers that I'm working with, everybody, you know, fellow developers. Regardless of the language, which is most important. Regardless of the language, this is the schema in a language neutral IDL. And let's collaborate around that if we want to change it. Do you have any sort of compilers for this IDL so that people can generate code out of? Yeah, those are available out of the box by, you know, creators of this framework. Like Avro has uh, the compiler out of the box for Java. There's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a protobuf compiler built in, like, and integrates with any uh, build systems. Gradle and Maven plugins for your builds. What about JSON schema though? I think, I don't, I, I didn't try JSON schema yet. Okay, so for example, I want to update this schema to evolve it, to change it somehow. Probably two questions. First, how do I do that? And second, does schema registry do some kind of validation like your version is not? Yes. So you can do that at build time. You can actually, the schema registry's REST API will can help you with that, mm. that validation. Again, the typical JVM build tool, Java build tool plugins will We'll do that validation at build time. It also always happens at runtime. So when you're producing the message, it's going to make that assertion yeah. okay. that the message is correct. I don't remember like how it's done in, in Protobuf, but essentially we're talking about Java side of things, uh, probably in Protobuf as well. Usually the POJOs that um, the plugin generates, uh, these POJOs are self-sufficient and they have some of the you know understanding of the scheme itself. So you don't need to carry around this ideal file but uh, when you, it's not a pojo, uh, how we call it? Like a, it's a plain old, but it's fat object. It's not it's, like it's a, n- nothing P about this pojo. It's got a bunch of machinery in it to help describe its schema and do serialization. And yeah, yeah, there's yeah. just a bunch of magic, but it looks like a pojo video. So this five framework just calling the methods out of this pojo. Okay. So you little guy, I don't know you, but I'm pretty sure you, you protobuf. Give me your binary payload. So this is why. This is how the serializations work, right? So in this case, you cannot have like a serializer for every freaking, you know, Java class. Otherwise, another reason why Java serialization sucks, you know, you need to, there's no kind of like a generic way how we can deserialize without like having actual class and class path, right? With Avro, you can. There's a ability to have a dynamic object. And in Protobuf, also, I think you can. There is a uh, dynamic message. In, in Avro, it's called like generic message, as far as I can tell. And you can access this like similar how you accessing json like a map like which is also weird because where from the languages i came from you can have a 
very cool like dynamic access to certain properties and uh, you don't need to mess around with things like okay get like property you need to provide name of the property and things like that so you can just go like my dynamic object dot in property i'm talking about groovy so basically anytime when you're dealing with any type of like a dynamic behavior java api usually kind of like cumbersome like super usually it's going to be like a list of map of list of something like that his sql use the same same approach how you would java application would use except you don't need to write java application so his sql will introspect schema for you and uh, you can interrogate this in the runtime you can build up like this in memory representation so every time you write and create like create stream and after that you're putting all these properties in this case schema will be created every time you're writing something like select properties schema will be inferred based on the information that ksql has on top of schema registry and on top of this uh, you know uh, data that goes into this uh, the kafka topic so it's not only end user tool but also like a data infrastructure tooling tool so you you don't need to even think about the schemas like sometimes like if you just go in there with ksql i spoke with some people who have a zero experience with graphical streams before and i personally when i explain ksql I'm, I'm trying not to mention because in this case like false false feeling of, of control just like talk about use case and things what they can do with it and in this case they don't know anything about schema. They kind of heard about schema because everyone knows uh, SQL. And it's super cool. Like your key SQL even can be used for your discovery. So you're trying to like mess around. It's going to be like multiple stage process. You get some data. You're trying to come up with some algorithm to run some quick aggregation. And you're messing around with this. And you're finally creating this algorithm. And you're running this constantly. And the result of this publicated in another topic. So since the data will be publicated with information about the schema as well, with this magic byte and everything will be, you know, tied to schema registry, other applications will automatically benefit from the schema. When you start writing some other applications, say in different languages, not even JVM language, writing Go stuff, you can, based on deserialization of this uh, data, you can uh, infer the schema from schema registry and after that, uh, generate your dynamic object on uh, on the Go side. And those tools can be used together. You mentioned Java, you mentioned Scala, you mentioned SQL. Why don't you mention Kotlin? Does it work with Kotlin? Absolutely not. No, it's completely incompatible with Kotlin, and we don't think there will ever be any way, ever. Because they will start ever. with K. To use it with Kafka. Yeah, it's impossible, certainly. No, uh, yeah, of course. KSQL, fine. You know, there's a REST API. I don't know. I don't know, Anton. Can Kotlin... Can Kotlin... I can take this question because I'm the one who's actually who codes in this team. Um, <laughs> team is just team beautiful and i am smart finally i can i can say that because in the past it was another way around no Fine, uh, anyway go on yeah. Yeah. <laughs> age before beauty yeah so we do have a is we it do, too much to ask for both uh we are investigating this uh, <laughs> and no as a matter of fact there's a like working example that um uh in the repository that me and team you know constantly collaborating on um since uh, we love movies and the movie industry, we come up with like streaming use case where just we're building a bunch of apps on one simple use case, you know, how we can do running average of ratings. And we do have a bunch of projects implemented from like a simple producer consumer written in uh, Groovy. 
and uh, the Kafka streams written in Java. And there's a example of uh, using this in say Spring Framework because Spring Framework has its own kind of like a cool things to do with Kafka and integrates with Kafka nicely. And there's also example how to do it in Kotlin. I found this like, there's no Scala example though in this repository and it will never be. Uh, <laughs> but there's example of a Scala somewhere in the in other repositories you feel free to so yeah i like the, how i can express certain things using kotlin especially i was able to demonstrate like extension functions and specifically because kotlin has like pretty cool ability to do some like a type inference in um, how it's called like when i can put type of the object as a input parameter to the function how it's called i forgot anton you mean the lambda with the receiver Yes, exactly. So for example, what I can do in this case, I can kind of like find like very cool and dynamic way how I can avoid. Um, so when I need to, uh, in Kafka streams, when I'm writing something into, into topic or reading something from the topic, I need to specify serialize or deserialize. There's two helper methods that allows me to specify topic and uh, it's called like consumed with. In this case, I will need to provide like a serialize deserializer and produced with if I need to write a result of my computation into certain stream. So with Kotlin, what I can do is actually I can write extension function that will infer these serializers based on my type. So basically, if I have an Avro type, uh, say like a movie, and based on this Avro type, I can dynamically or like have a extension function that will simply generate this serializer, deserializer. not generate, but it's going to be not even, it's not code generation. But it will pass serializer automatically. So my sorry to interrupt you, but sounds like implicit syntax classes in Scala. <laughs> yeah, but implicit is done right, like because implicit is just some freaking magic. In uh, in I was I was talking to you about this like uh, like few, some some time ago. I was trying to understand what those guys doing, and I didn't like it at all. And but uh, lambda receiver is just like felt natural and without any like a dark magic on runtime. It takes some some effort to actually understand it, but uh, once you understand it, yeah. And I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so you know I think uh, the Kotlin people are doing something right. So. Nice. Then another question, because we had GraalVM mentioned in the first two episodes, I think it's time to mention it again. <laughs> Have you tried running Kafka on GraalVM? With the previous speaker of this podcast, we actually tried this, and we found this not much of the benefit of doing so. So first of all, there's uh, like, um, since it uses some of the, you know, this like a zero copy thing and there's like every time when you're trying to do any type of like off heap operations, they become like tricky. Like if you just like using just straight up the API, whatever available in JDK without trying to do some of like cool stuff with the like off heap and interacting with some of the underlying hardware or like memory map files and things like that. So Kafka streams though, it would be interesting to, to, to do this. I know that it's not the Graal VM, but at least like some of the people from the Quarkus project, I know that they're working on this type of stuff. But uh, I was told that Quarkus is not Graal VM and Graal VM is not Quarkus. I didn't have a chance to like uh, become an expert in this topic. Maybe it would be one of the topics of my future live streams. I don't know. Live streams with Victor Gamov on my YouTube channel. Subscribe and uh, enable notifications so you will not miss the live stream. <laughs> Yeah, do you have any opinions about this? So what do you think? It seems we have a subject for one of the next podcasts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, like, if you want to talk about this um, in future 
I have a couple of weeks to become an expert in this topic. This is how we do. This is how I did in consultancy. You know, let me win the project first. And after that, I'll become an expert. And, you know, I will make you happy. And I did uh, make uh, many customers happy with this approach. So it's like it works. Sounds familiar. <laughs> this is how we roll this, uh, what you can do. Let me ask you a question. So what's, uh, like Oli mentioned this in, uh, in the past, uh, that she was involved in some of the projects that involved Kafka. So what was your experience? What you liked about this? What you didn't like? What kind of like, frameworks did you use to interact with? What kind of languages maybe? But we probably know the answer. One uh, fantastic language called Scala. Okay. This is my love. So that's why I'm going to talk about that anyway. So I'm not, in, I, I cannot talk a lot about the project I worked on because it's a client project. And no, you don't necessarily need to, but at least uh, like uh, approaches in terms of like what kind of frameworks and uh, what was the alpaca things like that, something Scala written, but currently I'm discovering the new ZIO approach to the thing, ZIO streams with Kafka. So that's going to be, and I hope to write about this, maybe blog post about what I've discovered, but otherwise it's GVM language. So you can basically use the same thing that you use in Java. It's not like a big deal. And a lot of my clients would use Kafka Streams library directly from Java and just convert things to Scala uh, as they go. So that's one of the solutions. I want to say if there is a many Scala listeners of your podcast, I hope. Well, obviously there are going to be a lot. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I want to ask like, seriously, like come and see what Kafka Streams offer for Scala developers and maybe... Since um, initial implementation was donated by one of the, you know, the Scala contributors, I guess, Lightband with some uh, yes. contribution from community folks, it would be great to see continuous progress on this one. Because right now, what I feel, and I simply like, cannot talk about this because I don't see much is going on there. Maybe it is something is going on there, um, but again, I don't see much. Would love to get a feedback from community and see what is missing, what they can contribute, you know, themselves and things like that. There are a few frameworks, open source one, Kafka for us, and see, which is more functional way to work with Kafka. There are others. Yeah, that's very interesting to know again. And for the listeners, create the impression that like, uh, we have some sort of like Scala haters here or whatnot. It is true. It's absolutely true, but we love the people who love Scala. Exactly. We want to, uh, we want to learn more. Maybe like we have like one like fantastic website, in my opinion, that we're working on called Kafka tutorials, where we took approach of teaching some of the things around Kafka through some use cases rather than going through the things that we spent like first part of this uh, podcast ex trying to explain what's Kafka is and things like that. We went to approach there's use case. I want to filter messages. I want to count messages. I want to do running average. And we give you multiple flavors how we can implement this in a plain Scala. Oh, oh, what I said. I said Scala. No, no, no. I said on the plain producer and consumer API, which is Java, and that there's Kafka Streams version and there's KSQL version. And we really would love to have some contribution that explains sort of the use cases in the languages like Scala, Kotlin, or whatnot. So in case we will get 
kind of um, idiomatic view how people can solve these use cases using the, the language of, of your choice. So I am just like want to encourage your listeners to join us and uh, let us know. We have a community Slack around um, the Kafka and all things stream processing. It's really hard to get there, by the way. There's maybe a line you need to like uh, record uh, like your place in line. And after that, uh, someone yeah. needs to admit you. Uh, it's a very yeah. popular place, you know. That's kind of a consequence of just the way Slack onboarding works. It, it's you have to, yeah. If you're aware of a better way, uh, I'd love to hear about it offline, off air. No, I think I'm not. I have uh, my podcast Slack, my another one, Scala Lab podcast Slack, and I just allow everyone to go there. Ah, uh, okay. Now we have. That's, I guess, the difference. Moderation. <laughs> yes. They say everything in moderation. They don't mean that kind of moderation, but. Yeah, I guess we do. Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, it's kind of like a syndrome of a podcast host. I was hosting some of the podcasts in the past. And um, I always feel really bad, uh, but I'm not trying to hijack anything in uh, in the conversation. But it's just like it becomes natural. So every time when I hear there's like a someone is trying to, you know, get a spot to breathe. As, oh, this is my opportunity to speak something. And now microphone is mine and I'm the captain now and I can talk and talk and talk and talk and I will not give opportunity anyone to speak unless you want to interrupt me. This is how we roll. Um, this is this is who we are, right? Yes. Perfect. Uh, but I guess we have covered all the uh, questions and topics that we planned for today. No? Well, maybe. That's great. And the, my question is, it was like helpful. Write down in the comments and reach out to us on Twitter and uh, let us know if the conversation with Timberland and Victor Gamov at the Programming Glove podcast actually help you to understand a little bit more about Scala. Scala, <laughs> what is happening? What is happening? Fantastic. I, I know I, I definitely happening? didn't contribute anything to anyone understanding Scala better. There are people in the, in the podcast who could do that, but I'm not one of them. But I hope you understand Kafka better. Ole and Anton, it's a delight to be here. I hope I can be back. And thanks for having us. Yeah, thank Perfect. you for coming.